And the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. What a great shot to open uh, today's video with. And if you don't mind, I would just spend a few moments capturing this glorious light coming through the clouds. And the timing is absolutely perfect. And as I pan to the right, the scenery is even more glorious. This is one of the great blessings for me to be able to come up to the open-air pulpit and uh, capture such a spectacular backdrop. And I'll just spend a few more moments, if I may, because this is kind of rare to be able to capture so early in the day for April, it is bitterly cold, and I mean bitterly cold. So I will do my best to capture as much material as I can from the open-air pulpit. And just try and stay at a camera shot. because it's so cold, because it's so windy, and every blessing to you all, I will just uh, pick a slightly different spot, if I may, to speak to you all from today. I want to call this message, God, Gomorrah, and Genesis. God, Gomorrah, and Genesis. And I will continue, Lord willing, like I was able to do uh, through my Jeremiah study, which surprisingly ran to around four hours. And just spend a few moments, if I may, for today, looking at Genesis and referring to my notes going back to 2006, 2007. Genesis chapter 1, let's start, if we may, in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning of time, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all by themselves the heaven and the earth. No need for evolution whatsoever. When the Lord spoke the universe into creation, that is exactly what happened. And for us, for those of us which are saved, this is our benchmark. We stand or fall based on what Genesis tells us. We don't want to read into the text something which isn't there. We don't want to spiritualize the text. We take it to be literal. We believe it says what it means and means what it says. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, for those of us which are saved, like I say, we don't want to mess around with such a passage. We want to take it like it is. We want to Read it, believe it, and preach it. Genesis will also match John. Leviticus, as you know, matches Hebrews. Daniel matches Revelation. You can't really understand the New Testament without the Old Testament, and you can't understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. But I am very mindful that when I read such a passage from this great book, 
and I very much love and cherish Genesis, that most people, most Christians, most uh, theistic evolutionists, most people from Christendom come along and say, well, we don't want to take it literally, and they spiritualize such a passage. Well, let me say this to you. If that is what you do. Number one, you are robbing the Lord of his glory. And Jesus spoke about you people over in John chapter 10. He says, you are thieves and robbers. Number two, you are robbing yourself of a great blessing. And number three, you are robbing the Holy Ghost of his accounts of creation. But here's the thing. If you don't take the creation account, and I do, but if you don't take the creation account to be a literal account of creation, ask yourself this, who is running this universe? I mean, did you know, for example, that the Earth spins at around 66,000 miles an hour? Did you know that? Did you know that the Earth weighs over 100 million tons? I mean, just for one moment, ask yourself this question, if you will. If Almighty God isn't uh, in charge of everything, if the triunity of the Lord isn't calling the shots, and unfortunately most people uh, reject that he is, who is in control? I mean, who is in control of everything? The sun comes up at a certain time, it goes down at a certain time, the moon is where it needs to be, and of course you know that if there was no moon, there'd be no uh, magnetic pull concerning the oceans, and we'd have tidal waves. We'd all be uh, deep underwater. I mean, everything is perfectly fine-tuned. But if Genesis 1-1 is correct, if it is completely authentic, and I don't have any doubts when I say that, then mankind needs to sit up. Mankind needs to take notice. Because the Lord is very much in control. We believe in a sovereign Lord. He was able to speak the universe into creation. I mean, that's power. He is able all by himself to sustain the universe. That's power. Like Jesus Christ, he would go to the cross, he would taste death for every man. He didn't need anyone to help him out. He didn't need Mary, or the Mass, or you or me to help him out. He was quite able to do such on his own. And the same is very true of creation. So one more time and I'll move on. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And for those of us which believe such an account, we are called creationists. And we are ridiculed by many people. In fact, in the UK, the British government, thanks to the taxpayer, will spend millions, I mean millions of pounds on creation, excuse me, on evolution. <laughs> Let me correct myself. They will spend millions, and I mean millions of pounds on evolution, but they won't spend a penny on creation. And I'm not necessarily calling for the government to do such, but it is somewhat uh, uneven-handed. It's somewhat inconsistent of the government to fund evolution in the millions and completely neglect creation. And I'll come back to the government shortly. 126, but I'll say this also before I move on, that the churches are no better. I mean, the Church of England holds to theistic evolution. The Church of Rome holds to theistic evolution. Most people, like I say, hold to theistic evolution. They think that the Lord couldn't just create the world out of nothing and sustain it all by himself. He had to use evolution. He had to use long periods of time. 
He couldn't just say, let it be done, and it was done. He had to spend millions of years building the earth up from nothing. For me, I completely reject such a fallacious and fallacious and ridiculous notion. 126, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. The Father spoke to the Son, and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Son were very much in agreement with the Father. Let us make man in our own image. The creation account starts with vegetation. It starts in a garden. After vegetation, it uh, concerns animals. Then eventually, the Lord puts man on the earth, the first man being Adam, of course. And here man is made in the image of God. He's a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. And you don't have to be saved to understand that. I'm sure if you watch the news, I'm sure if you watch a good movie, or if you watch a good documentary, you can tear up very easily. I remember watching a documentary not very long ago concerning the Falklands campaign that Britain fought all on her own back in 1982, and quite possibly the last war that Britain will ever fight on her own. Although, although who knows, maybe Britain will have to go to war with uh, Spain over Gibraltar. Much talk about that at the moment. Now Britain has left the European Union. And I watched this uh, documentary maybe 18 months ago, very interesting documentary about the Vulcan bomber, now out of service. And I hadn't appreciated that during the Falklands War, 1982, I was only a young child at the time, the British government needed to stop the Argentinians completely uh, taken over the uh, Falklands, which of course is British territory, and the Prime Minister of the day, Mrs Thatcher, got onto the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army of course, and asked them to put a plan together, much like the Americans are doing with ISIS in Syria, and perhaps North Korea, which is also back on the boil. And the plan was quite simply this, to take out a runway. There was a runway on uh, the island, the Falkland Islands, Stanley to be precise, and it was a big enough air strip for the Argentinians to use to bomb British assets. But the problem was that around that time, and the Falklands is around 8,000 miles away uh, from the UK, so from Britain to the Falklands, 8,000 miles, quite a distance. At that time, Britain had no uh, airstrips that she was using as such. There were no fixed-wing aircraft on the island at that time, unlike today. So the plan was this. Take out the airstrip, whatever it takes. Take out the airstrip. Stop uh, Buenos Aires bombing uh, British assets, so on and so forth. So the plan was to send a Falkland, excuse me, a, uh, a Vulcan bomber, a Vulcan bomber from Britain to... Uh, the Falklands via the Ascension Islands. Never been done before. But the problem was this. It will run out of petrol. It will run out of fuel. Or as the Americans say, gas. So they had to send 12 refueling TriStar aircraft, I think that's what they were called at the time, to 
keep this plane up in the air. Absolutely incredible. And this plane flew for, I think, 15 hours, landed at the Ascension Island, was refueled, and then took off on a bombing campaign using material, equipment, going back to the Second World War. In fact, this documentary is on Channel 4. It was made by Channel 4. It's now on YouTube. Please excuse the sniffing. It's very cold. No matter how many times I come up here to do this type of thing, I'm always shocked at how cold it is. But you can watch this documentary. It's on YouTube. Fascinating documentary. And therefore, the plane takes off from the Ascension Island. It's heading down to Stanley. And it's being refueled by not one, not two, but 12 refueling planes. And every time a plane ran out of fuel, it had to go back to the Ascension Islands. As it gets nearer to uh, its location to drop the bombs, it is almost out of petrol. I mean, right at the end of a tank. And panic sets in, what are we going to do? We can't land. There's just sea everywhere. And by the grace of God, and I think the Lord stepped in, that plane was able to go that little further, drop its bombs, take out this airstrip. As far as I know, nobody was killed, although I may be wrong when I say that. No doubt somebody will correct me if I'm wrong when I say that. But that's war, of course, if someone did die. Hit its target, like I say, and then turn around and head back to the Ascension Island. And as it was doing so, it was dangerously low on juice, as we say in the UK. And the crew were starting to panic. It was bad enough making it to Stanley, but to then turn around and go back to Ascension Island looked like it was going to be impossible. And out of nowhere, this TriStar refueling jet appeared. And I'm sure some of those RAF personnel were thanking the Lord, although very privately, you see, because the Brits are very private people, very upright people. We don't talk about the Lord in public, you understand. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure some of those Brits, some of those RAF bombers were thanking the Lord under their breath. And this jet, this TriStar, arrived out of nowhere and was able to refuel this Vulcan bomber, this huge British jet built during the uh, Cold War. And by the grace of God, it made it safely to the Ascension Island and then back to the UK. And I watched that, very emotional to watch, and just hear their accounts about how it was almost Mission Impossible. So you don't have to be a saved person to feel emotional. You don't have to be a saved person to know right from wrong. The Lord has put that into all of us. But for those of us which are saved, we have a super sensitive conscience. But also from 126, the Trinity, the uh, Trinity of the Lord, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not only speaking to themselves about creating man in their own image, again, without any thanks or any help or any need for evolution, but here they give man dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all of the earth, which means man is supreme. Man is top dog. You see, man is made in the image of the Lord. Jesus Christ didn't die for the animals. The animals don't have souls like mankind does. Animals have spirits, but not souls. So as far as the animal world is concerned, Christ didn't die for them because they don't have souls. On top of that, they aren't sinners in the sense that mankind is. But 
Also from this piece of scripture comes a great responsibility. And I mentioned this during my Jeremiah uh, two-part message that as custodians of the earth, there is responsibility which comes with such. But this is a great piece of scripture to A, affirm the creation account, B, that man is made in the image of the Lord, and C, that mankind as top dog, if you will, mankind as supreme, has the keys to the earth, is the custodians, or the custodian of the earth, and yet there is responsibility, like I say, which comes with such. Look at 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So if you are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, saved or unsaved, you are made in the image of the Lord. I know some people don't agree with that. Some Christians don't believe in that. They think that when Adam fell, subsequent uh, people that came from the line of Adam are made in his image. I don't agree with that. I think mankind is made in the image of the Lord, whether you're saved or unsaved. We know from John chapter 1 how Christ lights every man that comes into the world. So there is a responsibility there. There is something inside of all of us which allows us to know right from wrong, which is what original sin is all about. But ultimately, there is a sense of responsibility. You are expected to acknowledge that you have a creator. 28, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. You will be expected, and this is what the Lord is addressing first and foremost to Adam and Eve, and vicariously you and I, you are to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth, you will start off as a vegetarian. The animals will start off as vegetarians. In fact, during the uh, early days of Adam and Eve, they lived outside. There were no homes. There were no houses. They lived outside naked with the animals. It's hard to believe. There's a picture of innocence. There's a picture of purity. There's a picture of sacredness. In fact, if you think of Eden, what was lost in Eden was first of all restored at Gethsemane. And what went wrong in Eden, or what was lost in Eden, will be allowed to rerun during the millennium. I think one of the reasons why the Lord wants to allow the earth to run for 1,000 years, like the new earth, like New Jerusalem, is because that was the original plan for the Garden of Eden. But Adam would fall, Eve would fall, and therefore the Lord suspends. He suspends that innocence, that unique period of time, and in his mind, through foreknowledge, no doubt, he will allow the millennium to replace what was lost during Eden. But here, 28, and God, Elohim, in Hebrew, which is plural and also singular, 
and therefore as a Trinitarian I can leave it in the sense of Father, Son and Spirit. Bless them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So man is made in the image of the Lord. Man has been given this great commission, which comes with a lot of responsibility. And in the early days, he will, as I say, have dominion over the animal world and over the earth itself, Eden, to be specific. Chapter 2, look at verse 2, please. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he made, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day, more his work, which he had done. Seventh day being Saturday, rested in the sense of rejoicing, rested in the sense of finishing, rested in the sense of completion. Christ would say he came to fulfill the law. He came to complete the law. And if you speak to the SDA, they say, well, there you are, you see, Almighty God has marked out Saturday as a special day, which is correct, and therefore we have to mark it out. That's incorrect. The Lord did mark out Saturday as a special day, true, and that day would be uh, later given to the children of Israel. But no Jew pre-Egypt would ever keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was part of the Ten Commandments which incidentally wasn't given to the church. The Ten Commandments wasn't given to the Gentiles. The Ten Commandments were given to the children of Israel. Three, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. So, yes, it's true that Saturday was a special day, because that's the day that the Lord finished his creation account. And it would go on to say how it was very good. The Lord was very pleased with his uh, creation account. In fact, 131, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So yes, okay, fine. Saturday was earmarked out for the children of Israel, to observe because the old covenant was given to them, not us, the church. But when Christ comes along, he was raised from the dead during the first day of the week, which of course is a Sunday. And the early church met on a Sunday to break bread. At the same time, it is fair to say that the early church were mainly Jewish and therefore they kept the Sabbath, but they also kept Sunday as well. Look at verse uh, 4, please. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. So let's take the old earth option for one moment, the old earth theory for one moment, which most Christians, I'm afraid to say, hold to. If 
the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning were the second day, the evening and the morning were the third day, the evening and the morning were the fourth day. If those days are not literal lunar days, if those days are not literal 24-hour days, but if those days are long periods of time, then how could it be possible to start with the vegetation, start with the animals, and allow such to be on the earth for 6,000 years, or 6 million years, depending on which uh, biologist you speak to, or, what, or which uh, Christian you speak to, how could it be possible for such people to survive? Because it says again in verse 5, For the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. So if it hadn't rained for thousands of years, if it hadn't rained for millions of years, everyone and everything would die. It is clear to me that such an account has to be taken literally, like literal days, six literal days, and on the seventh literal day, the Lord rested. He ceased. He would sit back and enjoy his creation. There's no other way, I don't think, to really take such an account. I mean, here's the thing. If you don't take Genesis chapter 1 literally, where do you start? Do you start chapter 2? Do you start chapter 3? Do you, uh, do you start chapter 4? Or do you knock out the first book altogether? Do you start in, say, Exodus? Or maybe you don't like the Exodus account. Do you start in Leviticus? Or maybe you don't like the Leviticus account. I mean, where do you start? Either you take everything literally or you don't. Yes, it's true, some parts of Scripture are to be taken figuratively. I won't uh, dismiss that. But here's the thing. Every passage which could be taken literally must be taken literally. That's the cardinal rule when it comes to hermeneutics. If a passage can be taken literally, take it literally. Go back to what I said a few moments ago. If you spiritualize 1-1 one, one, from the first book of the Bible, you rob the Lord of his glory, uh, John chapter 10. You rob yourself of a blessing, but you also rob the Holy Ghost of his accounts. And for me, that is something I want no part of. Look at verse 18, please, from chapter 2. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helpmate for him. It isn't good, it's not right that the man being Adam should be alone. Adam is a type of Christ, and Eve is a type of the church. And we know from uh, Revelation chapter 4 that everything has been created for the glory of God. And therefore, he expects us, whether we are saved or unsaved, to acknowledge him. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. I and I alone will make him a helpmate for him. Christ Jesus would taste death for every man. He sat down by himself, having purged us from our sins. I can't stress this enough. Listen, when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to your relationship with the Lord, you know that old expression, two's company, three's a crowd? Well, it's true. If you are saved, 
or if you want to be saved, all you need is the hand of the Saviour. All you need to do is receive the gift from the Saviour. All you need to do is turn to the Saviour in faith. Trust in him. Believe on him. And then once you've done that, get into Scripture. Jump down to 23, please. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So again, Almighty God creates the world from nothing, runs it, sustains it, controls it all by himself. The earth spins at 66,000 miles an hour. If he's not controlling it, who is? I mean, think about this for one moment. If the Lord isn't in control, who is? Would it make any sense to suggest that this universe just controls itself? And here the Lord says, I will give Adam a woman, being Eve, of course, and she shall be called woman, woo-man, woman, because she was taken out of man. So, Eve had to come from Adam. The church comes from Christ. The church is Christ's spiritual descendants. Eve would be Adam's literal descendant. Adam was prepared to die for his wife. Christ died for his wife, being the church. 24. Therefore, should a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. That was always the plan for man. The plan for man, as far as the Lord was concerned, and still is, is one man, one woman, until death. One man, one woman, until fornication slash adultery. One man, one woman, until desertion. And I happened to catch a documentary a few nights ago, and yes, I do enjoy documentaries, but not too many, you understand. <laughs> and uh, we have liberty in the Lord, so don't uh, become too legalistic. And I caught this documentary a few, a few nights ago now, and I thought during the first few moments that I'd already seen it, and I thought to myself this. It's that Jewish guy. There was a documentary made about this Jewish guy living in uh, Suffolk, I think, or maybe Sussex, southeast of England. And this Jewish guy in the south of England has three wives, ten children, absolutely shameful, and I watched a documentary about him some years ago, and I thought it was the same guy. I was wrong. It wasn't that Jewish guy living in the south of England with three wives and ten children. Like I say, absolutely shameful. But it was about a Mormon guy living in middle America with three wives and twelve children. And I thought, what a disgrace. I thought to myself this, that guy is first of all brainwashed, Secondly, is probably enjoying the fact that he is brainwashed because he can have all these women, like Muhammad would do. But I was very struck, very saddened to see the women being interviewed by this British film crew, living with a man in his 30s, a Mormon, and having 12 children with such a character. And I thought, number one, he should be sterilized. Number two, those women 
and if they watch this video, need to leave him. You need to leave him, ladies, because he is an adulterer. And by marrying him, which you've all done, and yes, voluntarily, I know, and yes, you're all over the age of accountability, I know that as well, but nevertheless, you are all guilty of adultery. And your children are going to suffer the consequences of living in such a polygamous environment. And don't give me the Old Testament account of David as an alibi, or Solomon, or Gideon, or Josiah, or even Jacob as an alibi. Listen, those men in the Old Testament, especially David and Solomon, were kings on literal thrones. And in some ways, they will be not only resurrected to appear on the new earth for the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, but for those of us that are saved today, we too will have kingdoms and nations under our authority. But I don't think we're going to have wives in the dozens or children in the, do in the dozens. But here's the thing. For those of us which live under the new covenant, for those of us which offer ourselves as Christians, we know from First uh, Peter chapter 2 that we are a royal priesthood. So when we look back to the Old Testament for validation, or when we look back to the Old Testament to try and relate to people, we see people like Elijah, we see people like Elisha, we see people like Ezekiel, we see people like uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all prophets, some priests, but mainly prophets. Some of those men were married to just one woman. So as I stand here this morning, I can't think of any Old Testament prophets who had more than one wife. Yes, the kings, like I say, had many wives, but the prophets, the priests, physical prophets back in the Old Testament, physical priests back in the Old Testament, shadows of those of us which would get saved in the New Testament, only had one wife, one prophet, one wife, or one priest, one wife. You cannot, you cannot be a Bible believer, you cannot be someone who offers himself as a follower or a believer of the new covenant, and at the same time have more than one wife. It is a disgrace. And like I say, to watch such a documentary made by a British film crew shown to people in the UK was somewhat embarrassing because some people watch such a documentary and probably think that it's normal behavior. It's not. It's a disgrace. And because it was a public documentary, I feel uh, qualified. I feel uh, entitled to speak against such a disgrace. But I really hope, I really hope that those women get out and take their children with them because he will have more women he will have more children, and the children are going to be the biggest victims of such a wicked union. But the plan, like I say, had always been one man, one woman until death, one woman, one man until fornication, one man, one woman until desertion. Go back to uh, uh, chapter 2, if you will. I also need to just spend a few moments looking at uh, this description from verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created 
in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. If you speak to those that hold to the old earth, or if you speak to theistic evolutionists, for example, they will say that this description concerning the day is a contradiction. Because from chapter 1, it speaks about the evening and the morning, the first day, the evening and the morning, the second day, the evening and the morning, the third day, so on and so forth. And they say the two don't match up. Well, here's the thing. Chapter 1 of Genesis is a literal blow-by-blow account. You will never understand it, but you are told to believe it. By chapter 2, it's a summary of the creation account. In fact, keep your hand in Genesis and go to uh, Acts chapter 17, if you will. There's a similar description from Acts 17. Look at verse 30, if you will. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, like overlooked, made an exception for those living in darkness, and I'll come to that shortly. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Men and women, those that are over the age of accountability, need to repent. Change your mind, like go from unbelief to belief. Because he hath appointed a day, great white throne judgments, in the which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus Christ, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So that day, Acts 17, yes, can refer to a literal day like the great white throne judgment, and it can also refer to a period of time. So you say to me, could the Lord or will the Lord judge all of the unsaved dead during a literal 24-hour day, a literal, lunar, a literal lunar day. Yes, he could, if he wants to, or he could take his time. He could spend all of eternity doing just that, although, of course, he won't. He wants to get down to business. He wants us, those of us which are saved, to enjoy him, to rejoice in his finished work on the cross. So when you get to Acts 17, you've got two things there. You've got a day marked out for judgment, great white throne judgment, which will start at a specific time, on a specific day, you understand, and will run for as long as is necessary. And people say, how about those that have never heard of Jesus Christ? What about them? How would he judge such people? Well, he would judge them based on what light they had. He would judge them on what they knew. For example... Let's say someone lives in Timbuktu and has never heard of Jesus, unlikely for the 21st century. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that such a person lives at such a place or in such a place who has never heard of Jesus. And he dies, and of course he will. 10 out of 10 people die. He will be judged by Jesus, John chapter 5, and Jesus will judge him. And Jesus will judge him on what he knew. He won't judge him on what he didn't know. Jesus will judge him on the light that he enjoyed. And it will go along these sort of lines. When you were 17, when you were 18, when you were 19, when you were 20, when you were old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, you stole a pig one night. Remember that incident, that pig you stole? And that pagan will say, yes, Lord, I remember that incident very well. And the Lord will say to that pagan, why did you do it when it was nighttime? 
And that pagan will think to himself, well, if I say I waited for the sun to go down because I didn't want to be caught, I'm going to convict myself, which is absolutely correct. He will convict himself. So the pagan will become silent. Romans says how every mouth will be stopped. But in his mind, he's thinking to himself that he's in trouble because that pagan living in Timbuktu, who never heard of Jesus, unlikely I know, but let's say that such a person can be found, when he stole his neighbor's pig, when he stole his friend's pig, when he stole his acquaintance's pig, waited for the sun to go down, because A, he knew that it was wrong, B, he knew that if he was discovered, if he was found stealing his uh, friend's pig, he would be caught and probably punished. His conscience told him it was wrong, and that's why he waited for the sun to go down. You can't beat the Lord. Whatever you say or do in the darkness is going to be brought to the light. But for a pagan, for an unsaved man or woman living in Timbuktu or wherever, don't worry, such a person will be judged. And I guarantee this, they will be much more guilty, or far more guilty, not just of stealing pigs or cows or livestock. They are guilty of adultery. They are guilty of fornication. They are guilty of every imaginable sin under the sun. And the Lord will take as much time as he wants with such people. Go back to Genesis, if you will, please. So don't be tossed to and fro concerning the day that the Lord created the heaven and the earth. It's very reminiscent to Mark's gospel. And I went through Mark two years ago now, maybe three years. And the last few verses from Mark 16 have caused certain people confusion. Like, should they be in the scripture? And yes, they should be in the scripture. Don't worry, the Bible is perfect. But Mark 16, like the uh, last few verses, are also a summary of the entire gospel of Mark's accounts of the Lord. Genesis 2 is a recap of Genesis 1. Mark 16 is a recap of all of Mark's gospel. In fact, Mark chapter 1 is very similar to Genesis chapter 1. And of course, we all know that Genesis chapter 1 is very similar to John chapter 1. So, 2, 4, one more time and I move on. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. When they were created, three heavens incidentally, and one earth. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Not literally one 24-hour day like I say, but in reference to a summary, a final uh, description. And go back to the great white throne judgment analogy again if you need to. Let's keep moving on if we may. 3-1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Chapter 1 starts off very well. Man is made, being Adam. Man gets a helpmate, being Eve. They live with the animals. They live out in the open. They're not clothed 
life is pretty good, everyone's a vegetarian, there's no danger, there's no fear of being eaten alive or being clubbed to death. Life was pretty good. They start off perfect and upright. And by chapter three, catastrophe is about to come into the picture. In fact, Genesis chapter three starts with a cherubim and ends with a cherubim. I love the way the Bible is laid out. For example, the last chapter of Genesis speaks about a coffin. The last chapter of the last book in the Old Testament speaks about a curse. The first chapter of the first book of the New Testament speaks about a man having to die for people's sins. The last chapter of the last book in the entire Bible speaks about curses, plagues, about those or concerning those that add or subtract to Scripture. This book is laid out in a way that no other book has ever been laid out. So by chapter 3, a cherubim, a fallen cherub, arrives on the scene, referred to as a serpent, a snake, and he sees Adam and Eve having a good time, purity, and Eden, of course, starts off very decent, very upright, but what was lost, or what is about to be lost in Eden, will be put right at, or during the Garden of Gethsemane, and what was lost back in Eden will be restored during the millennial reign of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The serpent comes across Adam and Eve, and he says to the woman, not Adam, yea, hath God said. Did he really say that? You don't really believe in the scriptures, do you? You don't really take the word of God seriously, do you? That's how they do it. And they come along, these people, sometimes Christians, but normally just atheists, or the town atheists, the village, the village idiot, and they try and uh, make it look like a fool, and they push evolution on you, which, as I say, the government spend millions financing, and yet don't give a penny to creation. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden, that big, mean God. But you see, it's like this. Adam and Eve were very childlike. And Adam and Eve were told what to do. Like a parent tells their child or children what to do, a decent parent will put a perimeter fence around their children, and they will be very stern and strict with their children. And if a kid walks into the kitchen and the oven's on, they get booted out or when your kid is growing up, you are shown not to mess around with matches because there are consequences. So the Lord says to Adam and Eve, being his children, there are trees in the garden, but this particular tree you can't eat. Now the Lord is going to test Adam and Eve. He would test Abraham. He would test the best of the best. And if you are saved, he will test you. And he does so, not because he wants you to fail, but because he wants you to see that you can't live up to his expectations. And that's why you need a saviour. So he will test Adam and Eve. He will put them to the test. And this is where original sin comes into the picture. Go down to verse 6, if you will. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, 
and he did eat. So Adam is pretty near to Eve, and I spoke about this some time ago now, concerning the uh, doctrine, or the belief, I won't use the word doctrine, but the belief that the serpent has a literal seed, and that literal seed was able to, or continues to be able to influence people. We won't get into that again, I spoke about that during my last visit to the pulpit. But here, you've got Adam and Eve, pretty close to each other, partaking or falling, listening to the voice of the serpent, disobeying Almighty God, and taking of the fruit thereof, and both falling simultaneously. Look at verse 9, please. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and said unto him, Where art thou? Where are you, Adam? Now, this is Adam's first chance to come clean. This is Adam's first chance to repent. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Christ Jesus would taste death for every man. But, like all people, including you and I, we are not only complex people, but we can be very uh, complicated people as well when it comes to dealing with our sin nature. Where are thou? If you think of the account from uh, Luke 19, uh, I think it's 1911 from memory, it speaks about Christ coming into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a good thing that the Lord comes looking for us, because I don't think we would go looking for him. But here the Lord wants Adam to come clean. Now he knows what has taken place, of course, but he wants Adam to own up, like a parent wants their child, when they've done wrong, to own up. And he said, verse 10, I heard the voice, I heard thy voice, excuse me, in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There's conviction. Go back to the pagan uh, scenario one more time. The pagan steals pigs. The pagan steals cows. The pagan does what he wants with his neighbor's livestock. The pagan takes his neighbor's wife. The pagan takes his neighbor's daughter. The pagan does this, the pagan does that, and he knows it's wrong, his conscience tells him it's wrong, and Jesus will use such an account to convict him of the great white throne judgment. You can't get around it, my friends. If you're not saved, he will judge you on everything that you've done wrong, and it will start with such a minute thing like stealing a piece of paper, or a paper clip, or an elastic band, and it will go up from there, like whatever you can possibly imagine. But here, Adam has been convicted. Adam knows he's done wrong. This is original sin, to know that you've done wrong, to know the difference between right and wrong. Look at 12, and the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. He could have come clean. He should have come clean. But no, he passes a buck. He blames the woman. But on top of that, he blames the Lord for giving him the woman that caused him to fall. And this is what people are like. You speak to people. 
excuse the sniffing. And you try and explain to people. You try and reason with people about the need to be saved. And they put up every roadblock imaginable because they don't want to be accountable to the Lord. And yet they are accountable to the Lord. Ignorance is no excuse of the law. Look at 13, please. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Yes, that was true. But she too passes the buck. She too doesn't come clean. This wasn't a game. The Lord wanted Adam and Eve to accept responsibility. Nobody made them sin. Nobody makes you sin, whether you're saved or unsaved. Like that pagan account, no one made him go out and sin. But he sinned, you sin, I sin, because we are sinners. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Yes, that is true. 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's no offer of restoration, repentance to the serpent. Because once a serpent fell, and he fell before this piece of script, you, you understand, before he fell, and his minions fell with him, he was in a great uh, position of authority. A bit like chapter 1, 26, enjoined dominion over the earth, although he was very active in the third heaven, not the first heaven, but the third heaven. And he saw things, he experienced things that no one else did. So when the serpent fell, when Lucifer fell, when his minions fell, it would appear to me that they couldn't be restored. They couldn't be uh, forgiven. There was no repentance offered to them. But Adam and Eve are going to be temporarily set apart by the Lord. It's like he will say, I'll come back to you guys in a minute, but I'm going to deal with the serpent now. Because he had a lot of light, a lot of revelation and here you've got enmity, verse 15, between thee and the woman. Now, I won't get into the belief held by some that Satan has a literal seed, more likely a spiritual seed, but I know some people disagree with me on that. I will simply leave this in the context of the serpent and the saviour. The serpent is referred to as being a spiritual father, if you want, Whereas Jesus, Isaiah chapter 9, is referred to as our eternal father. Yes, probably in reference to Israel, I understand that, but spiritually we can apply that to the church. So you've got two lines, ultimately. You've got the line of the serpent, if you will, or the line of the saviour. You're either saved or unsaved. There's no sitting on the fence. And that's why we go into the streets. That's why we speak to people because we want people to be saved. We want people to have a relationship with the Savior. We want people to give him the glory that is owed to him.
But on top of that, we don't force people. We don't coerce people. We don't uh, try and bribe people to come to the Savior. We preach the gospel. No more, no less. So, a quick recap from chapter 3, and I'll move on and say this, that Adam fell, Eve fell. That's original sin. They were offered the chance to come clean, and they blew it. Now, I don't know whether or not they were saved. I find it somewhat uh, intriguing that Scripture doesn't tell us about their spiritual state. But that, that particular day, that particular event, was a day that they died spiritually. They didn't die physically. They would live much later, although we're not told when Eve died. I guess she's a type of the church, never dying. But they died spiritually. That, of course, is original sin. If you speak to Muslims, they don't believe in original sin. They don't believe that man has ever fallen. They believe that man was made perfect and upright, which is correct. But they have no notion of the fall. They think that man is basically good and that man chooses to do bad, which I'm afraid to say some preachers also believe, but that's incorrect. Christ would say, why callest thou me good? None is good but one, God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There isn't a just man on the face of the earth that uh, does good and doesn't sin, or doeth good and sinneth not. We've all, and we will continue to fail the Lord. So Muslims don't believe in original sin. They believe that their prophets were all perfect, good, upright men, and they believe that Muhammad never sinned a day in his life, and yet he was told seven times in the Quran to repent. In fact, one of my projects for this year is to read the Quran. I was given a sealed copy maybe 18 months ago by a friend of mine, quote-unquote, a mullah, an iman, to read. And I said to myself, great, I've got my hands on a Quran, and I'm told this is a trusted uh, version, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to read it, and I will either do a video or two, about it or write about the Quran, but I would do what journalists and politicians and priests in the UK will never do. Go back to that incident last month, that terrorist event where that Islamic fanatic murdered himself and his victims, and he did so on the belief that when he gets to paradise, He's got 72 black-haired female virgins awaiting him. And he believes, as do many of his Islamist friends, that once he finishes having sex with them, they become virgins all over again, much like the Mormon belief. Have as many wives as you want, have as many children as you want, become more godlike. That was made very clear during the documentary that I watched a few days ago. Absolutely ridiculous, completely fallacious, but there you are. But this guy from last month, he thought that by murdering himself, by murdering all those people, he would go straight to paradise because for the Muslim, there's no guarantee of having one's sins forgiven outside of jihad. And yet, why is it that journalists in the UK 
members of the press, I mean real journalists, and we have some left, not many, why is it that when such an event like that takes place, and we've been bombed in the UK for a long time now, we had it with the IRA for decades, and we've had the Islamists bombing us for 20 years now, I think the first big attack was in 05, 77, and then two years later, and then last year a woman was murdered on the streets of London, and there's been other attacks which the media play down, of course. They say that he was mentally deranged or she had emotional problems. They play it down. But why is it, especially after last month's event, that these journalists, these so-called Oxford boys, these bright Cambridge students, you know, the best of the best, why is it that they don't get their hands on a Quran and read it? and read it and see what is in such a book. Why don't they have debates on television like they used to do? Why don't they sit down and have a debate, a discussion about the Quran? I mean, make a documentary about the Quran. Make a documentary about Muhammad. Make a documentary about the Hadith. I'll tell you something. Had a communist done what that guy did last month, or had a group of communists going back 10, 15, 20 years, gone around the UK, murdering themselves, murdering other people. You can be sure that the media would have got their hands on Das Capital and read it and read it and read it and called every communist they could find into their studios to interrogate, to scrutinize about why Marx wrote what he wrote and why capitalists, excuse me, why communists, and yes, some are capitalists, but why communists believe in such a book? They wouldn't have hesitated. Or had a fascist done what was done last month, they would have got their hands on Mein Kampf, read it, read it, read it, and gone around the UK trying to find every fascist they could possibly find and invite him or her into their studios to interrogate. But of course, such people don't do what they do. Or had a Hindu, or a Sikh, or a Buddhist done what this guy did last month, or had Buddhists, Sikhs, or Hindus been doing what Muslims have been doing in the UK for two decades now, they wouldn't have waited five minutes getting their hands on such so-called holy books to really scrutinize what is in such books, what motivates people to do what they do, or had a Christian done what was done last month or over the last two decades? They would have got their hands on a Bible, they would have read it, they would have ripped it to pieces, they would have mocked it, they would have completely uh, penalized anyone who was invited to such a studio. They would have really made such a person feel very small. But of course they won't do it because they are terrified on the one hand of Islam. They are terrified of criticizing Islam. They are closet Muslims themselves. And unfortunately, when you speak about Islam to journalists or people in general, the first thing that comes in their minds is ethnic minority, box clever. This is not a racial thing. This is a spiritual thing. This is a spiritual issue. I mean, I wouldn't mind, listen, I'll get back to this in a minute. I wouldn't mind if 
the media, okay, or the press, the politicians were more even-handed, more consistent, okay. We know as Christians that our faith is attacked. We know that our God is blasphemed. We know that in this country especially, it's very difficult to speak about what we believe without being ridiculed, without being mocked, ostracized, passed up for promotion, so on and so forth. I wouldn't mind if the same was put, or if the same was uh, put on other people. I mean, be consistent, please. Be consistent, be even-handed. If you're going to scrutinize Christianity and Christians and the Word of God, fine. But for goodness sake, please be as objective as you can. Take the time to look at all of these world religions. But of course they won't because they are terrified. And on top of that, they hate Christianity. The world have no interest in Christ. And they think somewhat foolishly that if Islam is able to spread, that they will be received with welcomed arms, kid themselves. 4-1, and Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. So she credits Jehovah with her firstborn, and correctly so. And I want to make that point, because some people, like I say, believe that Satan had a literal seed. And they also believe that Satan was able to sleep with Eve and cause her to become pregnant with Cain. Many problems with such a belief, such a view. I mean, if you take that view to be so, what's to stop you from saying that Abel was also conceived thanks to Satan? Or Seth was also conceived thanks to Satan? And if you take such to be the case, then how does that feed into the line of Christ? We're so careful when it comes to reading this book. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, intercourse, of course. And she conceived, fell pregnant, and bare Cain, gave birth to Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Go to verse 8, please. She correctly credits the Lord with the birth of a firstborn son, not the serpent. Verse 8, And Cain taught with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. The first murder in Scripture credited to the first man born to the first family in Scripture as a result of original sin. And the scripture says, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Nine. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Adam, where art thou? Cain, where is your brother? What have you done to your brother? This is once again Jehovah wanting and offering repentance to his creation. He wants Cain to come clean. He wanted Adam to come clean. Adam was tested and failed. Eve was tested and failed. Jesus 
was tested and succeeded. Muhammad was tested and failed. Abraham was tested and failed. Isaac was tested and failed. Jacob was tested and failed. You will be tested and fail. I will be tested and fail. But Jesus was tested and never failed. 10. And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. You've just murdered your brother in cold blood, probably premeditated as well. Blood has been spilt, and the Lord had the right to kill Cain straight away, like capital punishment, and yet he wouldn't do that. He is very long-suffering, even with Cain. He could have said to Cain, off with your head. Where are you, Cain? Where is your brother, Cain? I know not. I don't know. Verse 9, am I my brother's keeper? Some level of uh, sarcasm there. What has thou done? Verse 10, second chance to come clean, Cain. The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground, like Revelation chapter 6, those souls under the altar. How long, O Lord? We've had our heads cut off by the Antichrist. We won't take his mark of the beast. Hebrews uh, 11 speaks about some people wanting a better resurrection. But he fails to come clean. He won't step forward, he won't say, yes, Lord, I've made a mistake. And this is the consequence of original sin. Once Adam fell, once Eve fell, they would give birth to children, who give birth to children, who give birth to children. And the consequences are all around for us to see. You think of the uh, description, terrible twos. A kid turns the age of two and starts to have temper tantrums. And the first thing a kid will say is no, not yes. The fall of man, original sin, affects everyone. And if you don't believe me, just read the newspaper. Just watch television. Just look at a documentary. I mean, it's everywhere. It's amazing that more people aren't being massacred. I mean, that event in London last month could have been so much worse. In fact, that event from last month, it's almost just disappeared from the headlines. There was an event at uh, Westminster Abbey this week and all of the good and the great turned out, turned out and turned up for this event. And they all turned out wearing the nice clothes and uh, the royal family were there and probably members of the government and the priests and vicars were there. And I thought, but where were those people before such an event took place? And those people that got caught up in that event, were they churchgoers? Did they know the Lord Jesus Christ? If they weren't churchgoers, if they didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then such a service is pointless. Such a service is an abomination. But I really wish these church services and such church people would keep their mouth shut. They don't know what they're talking about. And when people live and die without Christ, they spend forever without Christ. 
in the lake of fire. You must be born again. 4.26 And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Paul says, Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You want to be saved? Call on the name of the Lord. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, and you are guaranteed everlasting life. You pass from death unto life. Don't pass it up. 